The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, would you reveal yourself to us? And may we learn to worship in spirit and in truth for the glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we began a short series of sermons on John chapter 4, which tells the story of the woman at the well. Now that story, it's familiar to many of us, but as we saw last week, when you read it carefully, you realize first how strange a conversation it is. And you realize second then what a powerful testimony it is to the love of God in Jesus Christ. At the outset of the chapter, Jesus travels north from Jerusalem into the hill country of the Samaritans. The Samaritans are the spiritually wayward cousins of the Jews. Their religion is a a Jewish pagan smorgasbord. That word is a lot harder to say at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning than you realize. Their religion is this buffet, and their ethnicity is a mix of Jewish and Assyrian backgrounds. So Jews don't typically associate with Samaritans. Instead, they despise them. But in John chapter 4, we find Jesus at a well in the middle of the day asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. As we saw last week, religious, ethnic, and gender barriers all loom pretty large in this moment. But Jesus just crashes through them. And what begins with Jesus asking for a drink turns very quickly into conversation where he offers this Samaritan woman living water and the gift of eternal life. So last week we stopped at verse 15. Jesus has offered this woman living water and she has replied, sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And this morning we see what Jesus does next. So turn with me to John chapter 4. It's on page 
889 of those red Bibles, where we begin with verse 16 as Jesus redirects the conversation in an unexpected and awkward way. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband, and come here. This is not where she thought the conversation was going. The woman thought that she was on the verge of being shown the source of living water, something that was going to change her life forever. But instead, and out of the blue, with a simple request, Jesus brings up an awkward subject. Taken aback, she replies, I I have no husband. It's a true statement, but it conceals more than it reveals. Jesus knows this, and so he says to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So last week, I mentioned that the middle of the day is an odd time to visit a well. Fetching water was a morning or evening activity done with other women during the cooler parts of the day. It was a communal thing. But if you weren't on good terms with the other women, or you had something that you preferred to hide, you would probably go out to the well on your own at a different time. Well, now we know why she might have been there on her own at noon. She's been married five times. She's now having an affair. She's probably not the most popular woman in town. Jesus had broken through the religious, ethnic, and gender barriers that stood between him and this woman with such ease. But now he pauses in front of a new barrier, the barrier of her sin. Now, we don't know many details, nor are we meant to. It's enough for Jesus to know and for the woman to know that he knows. What we are meant to see is as simple as it is painful and awkward. Her sin stands as a barrier between her desire for living water and her ability to receive it. But what's so interesting here, and and even a little maddening, is that this part of the conversation appears to be left unresolved. The sin barrier, it's not directly broken down. Instead, the woman takes the conversation in, in, in what seems to be a new direction, and Jesus goes along with her. So what's going on exactly? Is Jesus ignoring her sin or excusing it or maybe holding it over her head as a threat for later? Well, as the conversation unfolds, we see that Jesus is less concerned with highlighting her trespasses than he is with drawing her attention to the work of salvation that he is accomplishing. He's raised the issue of sin here. He's let her know that this barrier is somehow different than the others. But instead of giving her instructions on where and how to offer a sacrifice for her sin, which is what she appears to ask for next, he lets the conversation shift over to him. Why? Because the only way to break through the barrier of sin that separates us from God is to go through Jesus. So the conversation goes exactly where it's meant to. And in verse 23, Jesus makes an intriguing allusion to something that's about to happen. He says, the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Elsewhere in this gospel, when Jesus speaks of the hour or his hour, it is a reference to his death and resurrection, to the climax of his ministry. What's about to happen in the hour that's coming is that by, by dying on the cross and rising from the grave, Jesus is going to break through the barrier of our sin and through his own body reconcile us to God. He is going to be the sacrifice offered for the sins of the world. And his body will be broken not on Mount Gerizim with the Samaritans, nor even on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but on a trash heap outside the city walls, a place reserved for the execution of convicts and murderers. Having pointed to the barrier of sin in her life, Jesus is content to allow the conversation to shift toward him because the problem is not the focus here. The solution is, and the solution to the problem of sin is Jesus himself. Now, there's something very practical for us to learn here. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, who put our trust in him, we all have friends and loved ones with whom we want to share this gospel or with whom we are actively sharing the gospel. And we regularly come up against this barrier of their sin. And some of us hit so hard on sin that what we end up communicating to, to our friends and loved ones is, you've got to get yourself cleaned up before you ever come to Jesus. Others of us, we dance so lightly around sin that it never comes up as a barrier to a restored relationship with God. So we present God either as a harsh taskmaster who insists that we get our stuff together before we even think about talking to him, or we present him as an endlessly affirming softy who doesn't really care what you do just as long as you like him. And neither of these portrayals is true, nor are they particularly attractive. What we have in the pages of Scripture is Jesus who puts sin on the table and then turns the attention onto himself. So instead of saying, let me show you how awful you are, Jesus says, let me show you how much I love you. When a person comes face to face with the love of Jesus and understands the cross as an act of love that tears down the barrier of sin, then he or she is able to begin to see their own sin clearly for what it is and to receive the love of Jesus. As you seek to share the gospel, take people to Jesus. Don't dance around their sin pretending that it doesn't exist, but don't dwell on it either as something they have to take care of on their own. Take them to Jesus and let Jesus lead them to the cross where he exposes the awful ugliness of our sin and wipes it away at one and the same time. We've gone a little far afield. We need to get back to the conversation between Jesus and this woman. In verses 16 to 18, he brings up the barrier of sin. The woman acknowledges it. 
And in his response, Jesus reveals that he knows the woman far better than she might like. The, the penny has begun to drop for her that this guy isn't just some weirdo mystic, but he is a serious man of God. So verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, it's possible that she is trying to steer the conversation away from her adulterous affair. That would be understandable. But I think that it's probably an unfair reading of the situation. I think that this woman realizes she's in over her head. And so she abandons self-defense and she goes straight to the heart of the difference between Jews and Samaritans in order, in, in an attempt to understand what she might have to do now that she has been exposed in order to get the living water that Jesus has offered. So verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Again, this is not what she expected. Jews and Samaritans, they had been known to kill each other over this debate about where to worship. But Jesus, strangely, he doesn't seem too concerned by it. While she has claimed the authority of our fathers and relied on her heritage, her religious heritage, Jesus is only concerned with the Father. And he points her toward a direct and dynamic relationship with God. She points to the conflict between their traditions. He resolves the conflict in favor of the Jews, saying quite simply that it is through the Jews that God has chosen to reveal himself. While the Samaritans had the first five books of the Bible and considered them to be scripture, they didn't know the prophets or the Psalms. Their picture of God and their understanding of how he works was incomplete. In a single phrase, Jesus throws her religious tradition, her religious heritage under the bus. But he doesn't linger there. He doesn't mock her. He shifts focus immediately because this is not ultimately a battle between traditions. It's not about where you worship, but whom you worship. And the God about whom Jesus speaks is father to both Jews and Samaritans. He offers salvation to all and is actively seeking those who will worship him, not according to the dictates of a particular sacrificial system, but in spirit and in truth. But what does he mean by this invitation to worship in spirit and truth, which is the crux of our passage? When Jesus says that God is spirit, what I think he's doing is establishing a contrast between us and God. Human beings are embodied, finite, limited creatures. We're characterized by our physical properties. God, on the other hand, is invisible, unlimited, infinite. 
We know each other because of what we look like. We know God by his character and by his actions, not by what he looks like or where he lives. God the Father isn't limited to one place at a time. He's spirit, invisibly everywhere all at once. And that's why God can't, cannot ultimately be tied down to a single place of worship. He can't be domesticated, which is what both the Jews and Samaritans had tried to do. Jesus says that neither Gerizim nor Jerusalem are going to matter in the end. If God so chooses, he can be worshiped anywhere because he reigns everywhere. So God must be worshiped in spirit, in recognition of his nature, understanding that he's everywhere and knows everything. But there's a catch here, and it's a big one. We can't know him unless he reveals himself to us. We can't find him on our own. In order for us to know God and to worship him as he is in spirit, he must reveal to us the truth about who he is. And the woman senses this. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Bingo. She knows that there is a word to come, a man from God who will set the word aright and show the way to God. And in his reply to her, Jesus sets her heart on fire. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In other words, as Jesus himself is going to say in just a few chapters, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to worship God in spirit and in truth, you are going to have to go through me. In order for us to worship God in spirit, we have to know the truth about who he is. He must reveal himself to us. And he's done that by becoming one of us in Jesus Christ. The God who is spirit took on flesh and he sought us out. This scene with the Samaritan woman, it's more than just a single encounter with a lone woman. It's a symbol, it's a metaphor for the way Jesus approaches each and every one of us. God has come to us through Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, God comes to all people everywhere. The barriers of race, social status, gender, and even religious tradition can't stand before him. He knocks them all down, and he invites each of us to taste living water, eternal life. The gospel is a universal message for all people throughout all, all time. But the gospel is also an exclusive message. Jesus is the only way to God. There are no other pathways to the presence of God or to the promise of peace. Jesus is the only one who can make good on the offer of living water and everlasting life because he's the only one who has broken down the ultimate barrier between us and God, which is our sin. 
So the gospel is universal and it's exclusive. Anyone can come to know God, but only through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, you know, we live in a world that says that truth is an individual thing, something that we determine for ourselves, something we can only discover deep within our hearts. Truth is malleable. It's adaptable to our will, which is why people say things like, find your truth, be true to yourself, you be you. That's a real favorite around our house. <clears throat> you be you when we're making fun of each other, when we're trying to correct our children. But as appealing as it is to be the master of your own universe, that is not the universe we live in. We don't determine what's true. We can't. We're bound by the laws of physics just, you know, as a starter. We don't find meaning on our own. Truth is something we have to be shown. Meaning is something that we're given. But hear this, people don't find Jesus on their own. When they look deep inside themselves, he is not there. Our friends and our loved ones need to be shown who Jesus is and why he's worthy of our trust and praise. They need to encounter him. They need to meet him in the middle of the day in a familiar place and get to know him, hear him out, consider his claims, which is exactly what happens with the woman at the well. At that crucial moment when Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah, at that crucial moment, that's when the disciples come back and interrupt them. These guys had great timing. And we as readers were left holding our breath as to her response. Leaving her water jar on the rim of the well, she returns to town and she says to her neighbors, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah? Now you can do this too. And I have a suggestion as to how. If you have a friend or family member you would like to introduce to Jesus, don't try to tell them about Jesus in your own words. Ask them to read the Gospel of John with you. Read a chapter or two at a time and then sit down and talk about it. That's it. The Jesus that we meet in John's Gospel is so strange and compelling, so unpredictable and yet so consistent, so honest and yet so incredibly loving, that the truth about who he is becomes increasingly irresistible as you read. Yes, it can be hard to understand, and you will not have all the answers to the questions that your friends will ask. But true things, they are often hard to understand. And people respect it when we don't have all the answers. Reading a gospel together gives you the chance to let the Bible speak for itself and to let Jesus introduce himself on his terms, just like he did to the woman at the well.
God has sought us out. And he's invited us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Through his son, Jesus Christ, he has broken down every barrier and offered us living water. Let's give him thanks in prayer. Lord God, it is a mystery and a miracle to us that you have sought us out, that you've come after us, that you have broken through every barrier that stands between us, reconciling us to you through your son, Jesus. Oh, may we learn to worship you in spirit and in truth. And as we do, may we be so captivated by the beauty and the glory and the goodness of this gospel message that we cannot help but take it to those we love, inviting them in to these true words about your son. May he be glorified in our lives and in the lives that we encounter. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.